The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. This podcast may contain graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and assault, including rape. These accounts can be triggering, especially for those who have also experienced sexual trauma. If at any point during this podcast, you feel yourself getting triggered, we suggest taking a break and taking care of yourself before continuing. But we do ask that you continue if you are able. These conversations can be mentally and emotionally taxing, but they are so important to have. All right. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Enough Podcast. Uh, Rich and I are here today with our guest, who is a advocate, a care nurse. She has a history in the hardcore scene first and the punk scene second, but we'll get into all of that later. Uh, would you like to give us a little bit of an introduction about who you are and why you're here today? Yeah. So thank you guys for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, my name is I'm currently a critical care nurse and supervisor. I also work with advocacy groups um, and educators to discuss addiction and specifically alcoholism within the nursing and physician healthcare systems um, and organizations. So I'm busy. Yeah, it sounds like you have maybe one or two things on your plate. Yeah, just a few. Yeah, you and I are similar that way. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like us too. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> funny how that works. I would prefer to be busy at all times. Me too. Yeah. It keeps the buzzing in my head down to a low roar. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So can you give us a little background about how you got into music in the first place? Yeah. So I grew up um, in a pretty modest Irish Catholic household. I'm one of two girls. I'm the oldest. My sister's younger. Um, and she actually works within the music community herself presently. So I really started getting into music. You know, my mom was really into like Zeppelin and Sabbath and all of those bands. Um, she actually took me to- Parent music. Yeah, she took me to see Bush and the Cranberries when I was like Ooh. 11. She took me to go see Tool when I was like 15. So she kind of segued me into music that would grow to be the music that I would get into myself. I grew up in Massachusetts. And the first kind of bands that I started really getting into were like the MTV bands. But specifically being in Brockton, there was a huge hip hop scene and culture down there. So I actually really got into the Beastie Boys. Um, they were kind of like the first band that I was like, oh, yeah, like I can really get into this. And then probably when I was like 15, I think I heard the Misfits. And that just segued me right into the punk rock scene and community. About the time I was... I think 13 or 14, I also started getting into hardcore music and started going to hardcore shows. There were a lot of really great clubs and venues in South Shore, Massachusetts. There was like Jared's and Attleboro. So there was a lot of really cool places that you could see music. You know, actually, I really feel for the youth of today because I don't feel like they have the opportunity to get out and meet their peers the way we did when we were younger. And it was that community that I really started to bond with. So being Irish Catholic, you know, I grew up having to go to church and it was a big part of my life as a youngster. 
when I was 15, my mom had me um, starting to do the confirmation classes, which is where you you get confirmed to be a Catholic. Um, And I just was not feeling it. I didn't really understand the religion. You know, I always knew that I had faith and faith in a higher power and faith in a God. And I still do to this day. I just Catholic wasn't the right fit for me. So um, I pretty much just refused to continue on after a few classes. I remember those classes. <laughs> oh, yeah. My last confirmation class, I actually showed up decked out in black lipstick, black head to toe, safety pins in my ears. The priest had an absolute fit. He told me to leave. He called my mom. And I just told her I was done. And that was kind of my introduction to telling her. And she subsequently kicked me out of the house. You know, I was 15. And, you know, granted, I I would eventually go back, but she kicked me out. And so I, I started staying with various friends who I had met at shows and kind of was back and forth between my mom's house until I was 17, but really found community in the music scene and had met a lot of friends to the even to this day, you know, I still talk to for which I am grateful for. We kind of talk about that a lot with a lot of the guests that we've had, where, you know, people who come from chaotic home life or, you know, dysfunctional family stuff, you find that family in the punk and hardcore scene a lot because it's all people who have gone through similar stuff. And, you know, we talk about chosen family a lot. And that's the perfect example of yeah, finding for sure. that. Yeah. And, you know, your chosen family is is one that you bond with and you you end up staying with into adulthood. And I found that with kind of my chosen family. I never really felt like my family connected very much with me. My parents divorced when I was eight. Um, my dad really wasn't in the picture very much. He did the obligatory, you know, once a week phone call. But he never went to any of my soccer games. He never went to any events, family events, barbecues, birthday parties, stuff like that. So, you know, that chosen family really solidified that I had made the right choice with starting to go to shows um, within the South Shore community. And then with the punk rock scene, you know, then comes the tattoos. Especially as a youngster, like all I could think about at, you know, 15, 16 was like all these people and they have all these tattoos and I want to get tattoos too. And starting to like think about what I was going to get and who I was going to get them from, which leads me to meeting the individual um, I'm going to talk to you guys about tonight who was a local tattoo artist that I met and subsequently would have a big impact on my life in the years to come. So when I was 17, I started really researching who I wanted to have tattoo me. And I found a shop in Abington, Mass. And I met a tattooer there. Did you come across the shop because it was like, oh, this is where everyone else kind of goes? Or you like the style of um, art that they were doing? or? I wasn't savvy enough to do research on the quality of work. It was more about (laughs) word of mouth, friends friends who were going there. This particular tattoo artist um, was somebody who did and still continues to do so, um, be a tattoo artist for the hardcore community. So he was recommended to by all of my friends. They were like, you know, go to this guy and uh, he'll give you good work. So I went in there when I was 17. I obviously didn't give him a license or anything. I was going to ask if there was a difference in like cross state lines of the 18 thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I just signed my name. I'm pretty sure there was an ID involved um, in the transaction. 
what year was this? This would have been spring of 2002. Yeah, I don't think you'd get away with that now. <laughs> yeah, not nowadays. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely not. So I met him um, and he did my first couple of tattoos and we started, you know, not becoming friends, but becoming friendly. Right. You're nice to me because I pay you money and I sit on a table for three exactly. hours as you mutilate my skin with colors. And, and <laughs> I definitely feel like in my kind of naive little state, I was really enamored by him. Uh, he was really cool in my opinion. You know, he was 24 to my 17. I know. I was just like, swoon. He's super cute. When you're 17, like everyone is really cool. Everyone's cooler than you when you're like 15 through 17. Literally, even like your friends who are 18, you're like, whoa, they are so cool. Like they have their own car and they live in their parents' basement. Oh my God. <laughs> That's like so cool. Like everything just makes it cooler. And this, I'm sure, is like that extreme dynamic of like, he's cool. He's older. He tattoos. These are yep. things that I'm super into. And I'm trying to get more into it. And like maybe he's yeah. not. I don't know. It doesn't really matter because he's cool. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he was very adult. He had a wife. He was married. He had a son. He, Seemed like the good father type, you know, so he was very attractive to me. And, you know, at 17, without having a father figure, you know, you gravitate towards anybody who gives you attention. And he started giving me a lot of positive attention. Actually, my test piece, he offered to do for me for free, which now I kind of look at as a big old red flag. Hindsight. <laughs> at this point, I was 18 and he was like, I'll tattoo you. I'll tattoo your chest. I'll design it for you. And then we'll enter it in the Boston Tattoo Convention. So I was like, oh, great. Let's do it. And he initially drew me like the sparrows with arrows coming out of their beaks from the back of their head. I was like, absolutely not. Very then, 2003. <laughs> very 2003. And I was like, absolutely not. So he drew my test piece, which, you know, obviously I still have, and I love it dearly. Um, in those days, I was a pretty hardcore vegan. I was really about animal rights and healthy eating and, you know, eating good nutrition as often as humanly possible or as much as my wallet would afford me. Nobody did, and it, it's all fruit. And, you know, the nautical stars, because it's 2003. That's right. Gotta have them. All our hardcore seed. You're getting a nautical star on you somewhere. We all have them. <laughs> You're getting a nautical star. I escaped the nautical star, but I did get my very first tattoo of two skulls. So I feel like it's a it's a sidestep. It's a linear sidestep. Your skull can match the little skull I have behind my ear. <laughs> Everyone's got them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know he drew this for me, and um, he started doing it on me, and it was really. For me, it felt really special, you know, and there was definitely flirting and things like that going on. And in those days, you know, I um, actually left high school when I was 15. I had very big kind of aspirations to become a body piercer. And then I would, you know, later on figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But I really wanted to do body piercing. So I left school at 15 and started pursuing that pretty hard. Um, I always worked full time. I always had a job. You know, my mom got me a job um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I worked the front desk and would go on to work in the family liaison and then up on 14 A and B as unit coordinator. So I, I always was working. And uh, in hindsight, that I would become a nurse being involved in healthcare at that young age, 
and thinking, I don't ever want to become a nurse. And my mom was telling me, you would be a great nurse. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but again, hindsight is twenty twenty. So this person told me that he had a friend who owned a tattoo shop and that I could go and do a body piercing apprenticeship there. And so I went there and I was talking with them and I ended up doing it. And when I was 18, I started piercing at this shop full time. And this person um, actually started working there very shortly after I finished up my apprenticeship. So I was like, oh, great. You know, like he could work on my chest. He could do other stuff for me. Like, this is awesome. And it was when we started working together that the relationship really started to turn very toxic. He became very verbally abusive to me all the time. He would make fun of me. He would name call. He would just in general do things to try to degrade my self-esteem. But then, you know, when people weren't around, he would still be really flirtatious. It's like mm-hmm. like the big kid version of like a kid at recess with like a girl that he likes where he's yes. like, you smell and I don't like you. And then later he was like, let's kiss behind the bleachers. Exactly. It was very much just like that. And um, I didn't know better because when you're a teenage girl and you mm-hmm. don't have a father figure showing you how men are supposed to treat women. And I preface this by saying my father is a wonderful human being. He has been with his girlfriend now for like 28 or 29 years. He is a good human. I think in his mind, he was doing what he thought was best and letting me have my teenage freedom and independence. And he didn't want to crowd me too much. But his absence really played a role in my feeling and not knowing what a relationship should look like coming from the man. So this tattoo artist, you know, really was very hot and cold with me. And it was in that summer of 2003 that we started sleeping together. And, you know, I knew he was married. And, you know, it just was a not a great situation through and through. And so many times I just, you know, wish I could go back in time and change that aspect of how things went. But I also wouldn't be the person I am today, having not had that experience as an 18-year-old child. So we started sleeping together, and we continued on that path for about a year and a half. It was, you know, again, very hot and cold. He was very verbally abrasive to me. In public or just at all times? Absolutely in public. You know, there would be guys in the shop who were friends with the owner who would come in and he would just berate me, scream at me, call me every name in the book. And people would just stand there and watch. And nobody except for maybe one or two people ever had my back, never defended me, never. They just kind of all just let it be. And I don't ever remember anybody ever coming up to me and been like, don't listen to him. He's a jerk. He really wielded a lot of influence in the shop. Uh, he was very good friends with the owner, very good friends with the people in the hardcore seat who would come in and hang out at the shop. So I never really felt like I had any support in that environment. And it really came to a head, I want to say it was the summer of 2005. I had just turned 21 in September of 2005, and I decided to move to New Hampshire with my best friend. I had just had it. I couldn't deal with it anymore. 
I felt like crap. You know, I, I just couldn't take that situation any longer. And I didn't even really tell anybody except my boss. I was like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm moving to New Hampshire. And uh, I, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I am just done. So I moved up in October of 2005. And it was very shortly uh, thereafter that I found out I was pregnant. And I was like, well, this couldn't have come at a worse time. <laughs> so I contacted this person. I just let him know. I was like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm pregnant. I'm planning on keeping the baby. I just want to let you know. I think I probably said something to the effect of like, I don't expect anything from you. But he was like, you know, we need to meet. We need to talk about this. And so you had caught ties with him totally. Yeah. You weren't like talking Absolutely. to him after moving up there. Nope. No, I was done. We never had the kind of relationship where like we would be texting or um, mm -hmm. Our interactions were strictly in the tattoo shop and were in no other place. So I drove down to see him. And I remember I got in his truck and we drove around to an industrialized section of the city. It was nighttime and we were sitting in his truck and we started arguing. And he was like, you know, how could you do this? You know, how could you do this to me? Like, you can't do this. You, you, can't, you can't keep this baby. You know, going back and forth for probably about an hour, he told me things like, if you decide to keep this baby, I'll move to Texas and you'll never see or hear from me again. And I was like, I don't need anything from you. Like, I've got this. I can take care of this on my own. And he finally just like screamed at me. He's like, why are you doing this to me? And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, because I care about this baby. And my saying that triggered just this insane amount of anger in him. I saw his whole face shift and he went from being like an anger, but also scared to just rage. Sure. I saw pure evil in that man's eyes and he just sprung into an attack. He grabbed me by my neck, grabbed me by the throat. He started you know, smashing my head into the passenger side mirror. At one point, you know, he punched me square in the face. You know, I got a bloody nose. I'm crying hysterically at this point. And I just remember him. He was like sitting in the driver's seat. He started like talking to himself. He's, you know, like, oh, man, like, what am I going to do? Like, she's going to go to the cops. And just having this conversation with himself, me just crying hysterically next to him. And he just kind of looked over he reached over and opened the glove box and there was a gun and he said if you tell anybody about this i will fucking kill you and Jesus. he was like you're you're getting an abortion and i just at that point i was like yeah i'll get an abortion i don't care i just wanted out of that truck i just wanted to leave just saying yeah. anything to i would have said anything to get i truly thought in those moments i thought i was gonna die I absolutely thought that I wasn't going to make it out of there. And when he opened the glove box and showed me that gun, you know, he started saying, you know, if you tell anybody, my friends in the hardcore scene, a motorcycle club that I know, like, they will kill you. They will hunt you down. You know, you can't, you better not tell anybody about this. Um, and I disagreed. And I told him I would get an abortion. And he threw $400 basically in my face and drove me back to my car and let me out and i just just could not even fathom 
you know, what had just happened. And I remember driving to my mom's house. I had previously been living in a basement apartment that she had. She had kind of like an in-law apartment downstairs in the basement. Um, and it had its own entrance. And I still had a key to it. So I remember going there just because I couldn't drive back to New Hampshire. I was just distraught. I could barely see. My ears were ringing. I was covered in blood. I had, I think, two black eyes in that moment. So I get to my mom's. And um, I get downstairs and I'm just sobbing hysterically. My mom is in the second floor bedroom and she told me that she could hear me hysterically crying from all the way upstairs down in the basement. So she came down just, you know, what is going on? Like what happened? And she turned the light on and she saw me and she was like, what happened? And I was like, you know, I just hysterically crying. I, I just confessed everything that had happened to her. And she was like, I am calling the police. And I said, you are absolutely not. I was so scared that right. he yeah, kill absolutely. me or that he would get somebody to kill me. I was just absolutely terrified. And she said, nope. And she called the police. They came down and took pictures of me. They made me give a statement. And subsequently, I filed for a restraining order, uh, but ultimately did not press charges. I was told down the road at, at some point he did get arrested. I guess the state pursued charges against him, but they wouldn't end up going anywhere because I just was not cooperative. I wanted to flee to New Hampshire and never think about that situation again. My mom did take me to get the abortion. I, I was put to sleep for it. And that was that. It was over. And I was done and never addressed what had happened. Uh, never sought counseling, never told anyone outside of a handful of very close friends, you know, making them promise that they wouldn't tell anybody. I was terrified. He knew people, you know, in a motorcycle club. He, he just knew a lot of people who, in my head, you know, were absolutely going to come and kill me if I told anybody. I was just absolutely terrified. And, and he was somebody in the hardcore scene where I was nobody. I wasn't anybody special. I wasn't, you know, well-connected the way he was. Um, right. The power dynamics. Absolutely. The power dynamic was real. And granted, we connected through music. I grew up, you know, as I mentioned, like I was a huge fan of the Beastie Boys. And he introduced me to like the hardcore rap styles of like Downset and E-Town Concrete. So like I always felt like super connected to him. But that power dynamic where he was somebody of influence and I was not, as well as he was older and I was younger, I was just a teenager when we met, you know, that power dynamic is very real, especially in situations where you're working with somebody. And it's something that I've done a lot of research about. Whenever there's a power dynamic involved and somebody wields more power over another person that relationship, in essence, becomes non-consensual by sheer fact that that power dynamic exists. And it's a struggle in general just to kind of regain your sense of self coming out of a power dynamic relationship like that when you wield no power. Uh, when you're the person who has no power, you become and you experience trauma at the hands of somebody who's wielding power over you, you become very isolated in your sense of self. You become very 
unsure of who you are and very, very just scared and sad and lonely. And that's what led me to start drinking. I'm 20 years old. I've had this horrible thing happen to me. I'm not going to counseling. I'm not talking to anybody about it. So I started to drink. And, you know, it was in those days that my drinking began. And I, I really started using alcohol as a way to, to make myself not feel pain. So, you know, I subsequently, like a year later, um, got into a relationship with my first kind of serious long-term relationship. We were together for six years. I don't want to say he's a terrible person, but he had his own demons. He had a lot of trauma in his upbringing. Um, and I don't doubt that he loved and cared about me, but he was also very angry and took that anger out on me pretty frequently. And we actually, when we broke up a few years later, I actually saw him out and about and we had like a really earnest talk about, you know, our relationship and what had transpired. And he, he was very apologetic and just said he was really sorry about how he treated me. But I was in that relationship for six years. I was very unhappy, very codependent. I felt like I couldn't get anybody better. And I felt like I deserved to be treated as poorly as I was being treated in that relationship. And you're also coming out of a circumstance where you were treated yeah. unbelievably horribly. So when you come out of trauma and you don't heal from it and you don't address it, again, your self-esteem, your self-worth is just gone. It's right. not existent. I mean, this could look like a step up in that at least it's a public facing relationship. Yep. Right. For me, it was somebody who was controlling the finances, who didn't hit me or physically beat me in any way, even though he was very mentally egregious towards me. He still wasn't as horrible as the previous person I was involved right. was. And eventually, I kind of had outgrown that relationship. I was really tired of not being happy. And I really wanted to pursue nursing. Actually, when 2008 occurred and the recession happened, body piercing I mean, was just gone. I went from making great money to just making nothing. And I was like, at that time, I was just like, I, I want to go to nursing school. I'm going to do this. And so I did. I became an LNA. I worked full time as an LNA while I did my 18 month LPN program. And at this point, I was so busy with school, I didn't even have time to address any trauma. Like it, it was actually great. It was a really good time for me because I was so dedicated to school and learning that I didn't have time or the energy to think about anything else. Kind of like what we just talked about with our plates being so full exactly. and so many things going on and being wanting to stay busy all the time as I move over to the corner of the box here. Yeah, <laughs> when you're that busy... Totally guilty. <laughs> yeah, it becomes, it becomes almost like a coping mechanism. Oh, yeah. Fill your plate sure. with stuff so you don't have to think about. Yep. <laughs> um, so I graduated with my LPN. I was actually valedictorian of my class in 2012. Yay. Um, and right after I graduated, I ended things with my long-term boyfriend. It ended very dramatically. I remember I had been chatting with somebody on Facebook, a good male friend of mine, nobody that, you know, I was involved with illicitly. 
Um, but he went through my iPad, saw the messages, and I remember he like flipped out. He destroyed the apartment that we were sharing. I remember him cutting the cords to like the fridge, the air conditioner, the computer. What? Now no one can eat. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He yeah. And, <laughs> and he left. And again, I didn't see him for many years thereafter. But in those moments, I was like, I'm free. Yeah, yeah. I can do this. I, I have that had that before too, where when you are in a relationship, no matter if you are cognizant of what's really going on or not, when you get to that final point and you're like, there's no turning back now. I've either said the thing or I've done the thing. Exactly. It's over. There's yep. this like weird, like oh, yeah. beautiful inflation inside of you that's just like freedom. And yeah. then you're like, oh, it must have been really bad if I'm feeling this feeling because I know this feeling. So it must have been worse than I thought it was. Okay, let's get out of here. Yeah. I felt very, very free, but I also felt terrified. Right. That comes along with the freedom. <laughs> yeah. I was, I would honestly, my self esteem was just so shot in that at that point that yeah. I didn't feel like I was ever going to meet anybody. It mm -hmm. was good and kind. Like, I just, it just wasn't in existence for me. And it was actually in those days um, that I really reconnected with my father, which was really healing for me. And I did start going to therapy, even though I didn't really discuss the trauma. Just kind of dipping your toes in a little bit. Uh... Exactly. And I continue to do therapy to this day. And I credit therapy to just being one of the most beneficial and helpful experiences. It's my favorite thing, honestly. I talk about it every podcast episode. I have all sorts of different people now for different types of therapy. Support right. group, assemble! Yeah. <laughs> it's like get your people in place, line them up, and get ready to go because mm -hmm. that's what therapy is. So I started working as an LPN, and I worked for a couple of years, and I decided I wanted to go back for my RN. So I did the same thing. I worked full-time as an LPN. I would do 16-hour shifts every weekend, and I would do my RN program during the week and clinicals on Fridays, and I just really busted my butt. But I started really getting into a really good place. I felt like my life was really coming together. I was like, this is where I was supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I had wanted to be a nurse for a really long time, um, when I was in LNA, I had started working in a nursing home, and I just felt so connected to these people who never saw my tattoos. They never saw anything about me that was bad. They treated me kindly, and they were just so awesome. You know, I definitely credit my working in a nursing home and being around these elderly patients who were just so sweet and so kind. And just they gave me a completely different perspective on people in the world. I truly, I learned so many life lessons from working in a nursing home. You know, my favorite one was I had a patient and she was, I think, probably like 99 or 100. And she made friends with like another 99-year-old there. And she said to me one time, she's like, you're never too old to make a best friend. I was like, oh, I love oh, that. Oh, my God. That's so, <laughs> so cute. It's <laughs> like, adorable. So Thing. And it's true. It's true. It's absolutely true to this day. I, I still find myself needing new friends. And I just, I loved the little life lessons that I would get from these patients. And I loved that I would talk with their families and they would just tell me what a good job I was doing and how much I meant to their mother or father. 
you know, I really connected with several patients and their families just so much. And it was just such a healing experience working in nursing homes. I did know that I wanted to go on further in my career. I didn't want to be there forever. But those times were some of the best that I've ever had in my adult professional life, uh, working with these people. So I went on to go for my ASN in nursing. I graduated from that program in 2017 with high honors. I wasn't valedictorian this time, uh, but the girl who was absolutely deserved it. She was great. And um, my classmates were wonderful. It was really nice to just be around people and feel connected and feel like my life was on track. I was still drinking sporadically, but really not much. You really can't drink and work and school full time yeah. the way I was. It's just really not possible. So when I graduated from school, as soon as I was done, I noticed I graduated in April. I noticed that summer it felt almost like a severe depression just kind of wash over me. And I attested it to having achieved all my goals and now I had nothing that I was working towards. Uh, I felt empty inside. You know, I, I got a job in a hospital and I struggled initially acclimating from a long-term care setting where the pace is very predictable and uh, it was busy, but not like a hospital is busy. So I struggled initially. I struggled fitting in with coworkers and acclimating to the acute care environment initially. And so, you know, I would start drinking. I started, you know, picking up a glass of wine here or there. So in the fall of 2017, I met an individual who really, he was wonderful. Um, he was kind. He was thoughtful. He was caring. He was considerate of me. He treated me very well. He was honest. He was upfront about things. He was just a really great guy. And I wasn't used to it. I was not used to being with a guy who treated me with respect, who didn't play mind games with me, who didn't have an ulterior motive. And I reacted in turn. And I would act very immature around him. You know, I, I was really clingy. I was very much pushing him for something more than what he wanted. He was very upfront that he was going through a really significant divorce and child custody battle. He didn't want like a full-time live-in girlfriend or anything like that. And I, I was really pushy, which is kind of what led to him saying he didn't want to continue things on with me. And I just remember, you know, our time together was we spent a lot of time drinking a lot. It was really where my drinking started to pick up steam. And I was using drinking to be a pastime for me and a hobby when I started neglecting my other hobbies. So, you know, I would say and do crazy things. I had like several confrontations with him where I just acted completely obnoxiously and would lie and say things to make him jealous. It's just like when you're a stable man and you have a girl doing that, you just back away like really fast. <laughs> it, it's not something you want to be a part of. And I couldn't understand why he was pushing me away. And I kept trying to go back to him and he just kept moving further and further. Um, so I, I would drink at home and, you know, really um, used alcohol as a way to cope with 
in my head, even though I had professionally succeeded in all my goals, I felt like my personal life was just in shambles and used drinking to kind of cope with that. But overall, it, it was strictly just like a weekend pastime. It wasn't something that I was doing regularly. So we stopped seeing each other and my drinking, you know, kind of stabilized. It wasn't too much. It wasn't too little. And I, I got several jobs where I really started to excel and I was really moving up the career ladder, which was really good for me. I acclimated better to the acute care setting. I started getting critical care certified. I started taking different classes. I just was so busy all the time. And it's interesting too, because with what you're doing, it's staying busy in a way where it's easily justifiable to you or anyone else because you're doing such positive things. You're getting- Exactly. And to the outside person, I looked like I was killing it. Yep. Yeah. Like I was really professionally doing awesome. Socially, before the pandemic, I was out with girlfriends all the time. I really connected um, with a close friend of mine. She was somebody that I spent a lot of time with. We would go to fairs and agricultural fairs and amusement parks. And we did little girl dates with a bunch of our friends. Like we were just always out doing stuff. And drinking was always a part of my participation in the activities. Not really so much hers, but definitely mine. And then the pandemic hit. And it cut off my communication with all my friends, my family. Work changed dramatically. In those early days of the pandemic, I actually met my current partner, who was the bright and shining moment of my life and my soulmate. And he's now my fiance. And he is just wonderful. He's the smartest human being I've ever met. He's a civil engineer. Um, he works in the environmental sector in a remediation group. So it basically cleans up dirty water and soil. He's kind of like Captain Planet. He is fixing the earth like you're fixing people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, he's covered in tattoos. So I was like instantly like he's super hot. Hello. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I'm sold. But he's a nerd like I'm a nerd. He loves music. And, you know, he introduced me to like Trojan Records and reggae and the Spirit <laughs> yeah. of 69 and ska. Like he's obsessed with third wave ska in a way I've never met. Yep, so he's a nerd. That checks out. Yeah. I like this guy already. Him and I would he's get along. He's great, you know, and he wears red Perrys with off-white sneakers, and he introduced me to sneaker culture, and he is a World War II reenactor and collects, like, British memorabilia, and he has hobbies the way that I have hobbies. I was just about to say that. <laughs> It we just we fit so well with each other. So when I met him, it definitely made my life better. But we drank a lot in the beginning and those traumas started coming out and I would get blackout drunk and I would scream at him and turn vicious and I would poke at his insecurities. I would find things that he was insecure about and I would press on those buttons and I began turning into a monster. And I wasn't recognizable to myself any longer. And I was struggling with the pandemic's effect on healthcare. We started seeing a lot of patients die in the ICU. Pretty much any open bed was a result of somebody dying. Patients, families couldn't come in and see them. There were 
many instances where I would have a patient who was dying and I would FaceTime their families and have to tell them. And some families would cry. Some would lash out in anger at me because I was the only person that they had a face to. And my drinking really escalated at home really, really significantly in those days. It became something that became a daily habit, became a problem. And in September 2021, I actually stepped away from nursing practice entirely so that I could get some help. My career was in jeopardy. My life was in jeopardy. And I couldn't stop. I, I tried countless times to stop drinking. And I, I physically couldn't, not even mentally couldn't, but I physically was unable to stop. So I decided to go to rehab. Uh, it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Which is good because of the, like alcohol addiction is one of the most dangerous addictions to um, withdrawal from alcohol yep. seizures, uh, yep. which can be deadly. And in your alcoholic brain, you think you can just do it on your own. Yeah. Tell yourself, I've got this. You keep telling yourself, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this, when you don't. So I checked into a wonderful treatment facility. There was a lot of healthcare workers in treatment with me, a lot. There was pharmacists, nurse practitioners, there were several doctors, social workers. I mean, it was a pretty high-end treatment facility. I was really lucky that I went to a really good place with a great reputation and really a solid program of recovery that they put in place for their patients. Um, and I was around a lot of other people who could just relate to the struggles that I was having because we all were having those same struggles. I think it's really interesting that that's something that's not really talked about as much is I've known several people in the health industry who have dealt with addiction issues. It's not talked about. And with the advocacy work that I do now comes with a lot of research. Again, staying busy, always staying busy. The statistics are alarming. Um, one out of 10 physicians has a drinking or substance abuse problem. Three out of 10 nurses report heavy drinking outside of their job and profession. So that the healthcare worker substance abuse rates are staggeringly high and higher than what the general population experiences. And it's not talked about. It's a very dirty little secret. You ask anybody who worked as a healthcare professional on the front lines of the pandemic, I can guarantee that 75% of them will tell you that they would go home and down a bottle of wine just the same way oh, I I'm did. sure. I'm sure. I've watched that myself happen. Yeah. When you were going through the treatment process, you know, obviously there's the physical withdrawal that you're dealing with, but then are you also talking about, you know, how the drinking started and like the trauma yeah. and all of that and what was yeah. sort of that like? So when I was in treatment, they had you doing everything. You saw a psychiatrist, you saw a counselor. When I stopped drinking, um, I will never forget it. I was sitting in a group and all of a sudden, all of what happened with the tattoo artist came back. It all came flooding out and I hadn't talked about it. I hadn't dealt with it. I haven't even thought about it. And it just all poured out of me. And I realized that that was the starting point of where it all began. 
where my drinking really started and where it stemmed from um, was this singular event in my life. So the recovery process was very, very difficult. In the beginning, when you're recovering from alcohol and you get sober, you're mentally, you're a wreck. You're anxious, you're nervous, you're depressed. Physically, you are tired, but you can never sleep. Your skin feels almost like electricity is running through it constantly and you're on edge and you're just a mess of emotion. But through the treatment program, they give you tools and they give you ways to cope and manage. Uh, And I was in treatment for eight weeks. I remember, you know, really connecting back to God and spirituality. They had a big emphasis on spirituality. And I remember I was telling myself, I'm going to leave treatment like after four weeks. Me and my partner and his son had tickets to go see Judas Priest. And I remember just thinking, okay, October 29th, we're going to the show and I'm not staying in treatment. And then like two days before the show, I'm on the phone with my boyfriend and he tells me, no, the guitarist of Judas Priest had a heart attack. They canceled the show. And I was like, what? Let's take. Well, that's not just a sign that there's a higher power telling me I'm supposed to stay put. Well, (laughs) there it is right there. And that was when I really devoted my my life to recovery and sobriety and moving past all of the trauma and all of the garbage and all of the mental hangups that I had had and really segueing into this pathway of spiritual enlightenment, but also recovery from the habits that were causing me to self-destruct. The neuroscience behind alcoholism is actually fascinating. They call it like an alcoholic trifecta, which is environmental factors, genetic predisposition, and then trauma are kind of sometimes the three things that will lead somebody to become an alcoholic. But the way that alcohol works in our brains is really methodical. There's kind of three parts of our brain that it affects our cerebellum, which is where our basal ganglia is our prefrontal cortex or our frontal lobes, and then our limbic system, which is where our amygdala is. So what happens is you you start drinking, and in your basal ganglia, dopamine is released, causes you pleasure, and it links up to the cues around your drinking. So the people place things that you start associating with drinking. So when you are around those things, you kind of think that drinking is associated with them. Like for me, it was punk rock shows. So interesting because there are very much certain bands that like I would just sit at home and drink to. And now when I hear the bands, like and even though I've I've stopped drinking, it's been three years. And since I stopped drinking by myself at home, it's been like six years. I can hear those bands. It's like a Pavlovian kind of thing where I'm like, damn, I could drink a big thing of wine right now. Yeah, you could thank your basal ganglia for that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And so from that, your amygdala, when you stop drinking, your amygdala releases stress neurotransmitters that cause the depression and the anxiety that you feel when you stop drinking. And it's important to note that in your amygdala, it is also your limbic system is responsible for your involuntary mechanisms. Like, for example, um, if you're thirsty, you know that drinking water is going to relieve that. Or if you're hungry, that hunger will be relieved 
by eating. It's a biological factor that's present in every human being. It's how we grew to survive as humans and as species. So when the amygdala is releasing those neurotransmitters, your frontal lobe begins this anticipatory stage where you start feeling like, you know, you have to drink in order to relieve those feelings. Your prefrontal cortex, your executive function that's associated with that becomes impaired from alcohol. What ends up happening is your rational thinking in your prefrontal lobe and your amygdala almost swap functions. And those involuntary functions, because of your amygdala, those involuntary functions start overdriving your prefrontal cortex. So you actually can't make rational decisions because your amygdala is functioning at a level higher than your prefrontal lobe. So when people say that addiction is disease, you now have the neuroscience behind how that is actually true. Drinking causes your brain to change on a physical and innate level. So interesting. It's fascinating. And I learned all that in treatment. (laughs) I also dived right into, you know, AA and meetings and sponsorship and finding faith in the 12 steps and reconnecting to that faith and spirituality that I had never lost that just kind of had to take a back seat. Yeah. So I really credit, you know, rehab and, and learning the steps of recovery to me getting to the point, you know, it's been two years and I'm the happiest I've ever been. You know, I credit my partner a lot. When I went to treatment, he stood by me and he didn't have to. We were only dating just over a year, almost a year and a half. So, and I told him, I'm like, if you want to walk away, like, I get it. Like, I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm out of my mind. Um, but he didn't. He decided to stay. And he said, you don't quit on your people. That's, that's my guy right there. That's marriage material right there. That is. That is marriage <laughs> material. And now we're planning our wedding. We're talking about buying our house together. His son, I call his son my stepson. Like, it's family. And it's, it's really amazing to have been able to find that in almost the darkest period of my entire life. And getting out of treatment, I stayed away from nursing for a little while. I needed to focus on myself and really get to a better place. But, you know, I started working again back in a hospital. I have a great group of coworkers. I have a wonderful manager who's completely, you know, she, she knows my situation. She knows what happened. She's fully supportive of me. I have a sponsor who I talk with, you know, all the time, who's just really wonderful. I've started going back to shows again. I really feel like my life is just put together in such a good way right now. And I truly live in a program of recovery as opposed to just being sober. So these days, I do talks uh, with nursing students. Um, who are coming to nursing, I talk about my situation and the risks associated with substance abuse and drinking within the healthcare community. I also started more supervisory roles in the hospital, which is really encouraging. And I'm now working on going to become a psych nurse practitioner. I haven't started school yet, but really this whole experience has made me realize that like, I want to help people in my position. You know, I had all these characteristics. I grew up in a family where drinking was the norm. You know, we're Irish Catholic. Everyone's drinking at Easter. Everyone's getting trashed, you know, on Christmas Eve. You know, I had 
the environmental factors, like the pandemic, you know, really egging on that drinking. And I had the trauma. I really had that alcoholic trifecta that leads you down that path. So knowing all that, you know, I feel like it really makes me a good person who can utilize this experience and help people in the future. And so I'm working on researching different programs that I can get involved with so that I can further helping. I mean, the whole reason I became a nurse was to help people. And it's the thing that gives me the most joy in this world. It's it's incredible and inspiring to hear, you know, a story like this when there are so many people who have been through horrific things like you were that don't make it out. And like I said, it's just, it's really inspiring and great to hear. Well, thank you. You know, I, I my story is not unique. I am in no way special. But I think even in the punk and tattoo community, there's a lot of people who struggle with mental health and substance use and drinking issues. And I think it's really important to recognize it and not only just find solutions, but, you know, utilize your community members and, you know, get help from them when possible, but also recognize when you need more mentally well-equipped people to help you in your sober journey because you can't just lean on your friends. You know, you really have to get help from higher places if you want to overcome any mental health or substance use issues. You know, you really need to reach out to people who are experienced, not only who have lived it, but have the tools in place that they can give them to you so you can move forward. Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.